0: All right, now open your Bibles, if you will, to the passage that Luke read to us, Mark chapter 10. Now, I've been anticipating this passage, and with a little bit of fear and trembling, <laughs> because this is a bit of a difficult passage. Now, it's not difficult from the standpoint of it's unclear. It's just difficult to say, well, how does my situation fit into this? Because I know many of you in the room, the topic of divorce and remarriage is very personal to you. And, and obviously, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if I did, and I said, hey, if I were to say, raise your hand for anybody in here that's been impacted by divorce, either your parents or in your own life as an adult of something that you've been through, there'd be a lot of hands in this room that would be up. And so I want you to know, as I've been in this passage uh, for the last couple of weeks preparing this message, you've been on my mind. You've been on my heart. All of you who have divorce as part of your story, either as a child or as an adult, whatever the circumstance is, and that may be even most of you, and we've, we've all been impacted, touched somehow um, by divorce, and the devastation that it creates in various ways, shapes, and forms. So my heart is for you as a shepherd, as a pastor. Uh, And I also want to be able to teach you as clearly as I'm able what God's Word teaches about this subject. However, I am limited this morning to the passage that we have in front of us that Luke just read. It is not the only passage on marriage, divorce, remarriage, in the Scripture. We don't have time this morning, nor is it our purpose this morning, to do a topical study on divorce and remarriage. That's, that's not the the purpose. We're in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to address what Mark's Gospel says about this and then apply it to our lives. And I'll, I'll just share briefly about a couple other passages, but for the most part, I want to be faithful to the text that is in front of us. And the last thing I'll say, almost you know, by way of introduction here is, You need to know that there are a variety of thoughts, even within Bible-believing, evangelical Christian churches. Men and women who love the Scripture, who study the Scripture diligently and want to be faithful to God's Word, have some disagreement when it comes to um, divorce and remarriage. So it's not a a simple, uncomplicated thing. And I just want you to know that. I'm going to, this morning, um, present to you as faithfully as I can, what God may be teaching us here in the passage of Mark, and then hopefully address it, apply it to your circumstance. And I know there are a number of you in the room that are even um, recovering from a divorce or or perhaps looking to be remarried in the future, or maybe you're healing from a divorce that your parents went through. Uh, Perhaps you're struggling in your own marriage this morning, thinking, man, are we even going to make it? There's a lot of stories in the room. And I've never had a conversation with anyone who's in the middle of this where I walked away without this thought it is painful wherever you are and it is never simple it is always complicated it is always complex now let's dig into this but i dare not dig in without another prayer so let me pray for us as we go father thank you for this word i pray that you would speak through me by your spirit and i pray that you would speak to the ears and the hearts in the room this morning particularly those that are sensitive about this. There are some in the room that as soon as they, they saw the text or heard the text read, they thought, I wish I hadn't come. And I pray for them in particular, that they would be able to hear clearly from you. And pray for all of us, God, that we would hear, hear from you, that we would um, understand your word, and that we would have hope of the work that you're doing in us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm going to start with a big analogy, and I'm going to take some time to unpack this because it's going to keep coming up throughout the message. About a week ago, Jody and I took our daughters to see the live-action version of Beauty and the Beast. So it just came out. Uh, We were there opening weekend, honestly, because of Dad. (laughs) I love Beauty and the Beast. I loved the 1991 animated feature. Um, I will admit, I was a bit of a geek in high school. I was like a music guy, right? So I loved loved a good musical. loved a good Disney musical. 1991, I was somewhere in high school. And uh, so we took our daughters. Of course, they were just as excited to see it as I was. Now, I'm not going to comment on all parts of the movie, but I do want to say this: We're driving home afterward, talking about the movie, and of course, you know, uh, part of the deal with my, my daughter's marrying a, a pre or my daughter's marrying my daughter's having a preacher as a dad uh, is that I want to relate everything to the Bible, right? You know, and so we're talking about the movie, and I'm like, "Hey, did you catch some connections to the story of the Bible?" And they're like, no, <laughs> we like the music. you know, We like uh, Emma Watson. We like the, the costumes and this kind of thing. So we, presented to ta- we proceeded to talk about this and connected the dots between the story of beauty and the beast and the story of the scripture. Now, let me say outright, it's not an allegory. I don't think there's any intention on the story writer's part, certainly not on Disney part, to, to make it a, a Bible story. It's not that. But I think you see echoes of the true story In a lot of these little stories, you you follow that? You know, C.S. Lewis wrote a lot lot about fairy tales. And he said, fairy tales are always connected to the greater story, the story of redemption. That's true in the Bible. So I want to connect some dots for you as a way of analogy. Think about uh, the, the story of Beauty and the Beast, for those of you that know the story. You start off and you have a castle and you have a prince and you have, you know, human beings, things as it should be, right? Human beings living in a castle the way it should be. And then something happens. What happens? Well, the prince is selfish. And and he commits this sin, if you want to think about it this way. This old woman comes to the door. You know, she's not well. She offers him this rose. And she'll say, hey, if if you'll give me some hospitality, all I can offer you is the rose. And he sneers. He turns her away. She's ugly. She's poor. She can't give him anything that he really wants. And so he turns her away. And then she transforms. She's not actually an old hag. She is a beautiful enchantress. And she says, because of this selfishness, there's now going to be a spell. There's now going to be a curse on the castle. The, the prince turns into a beast. All the servants transformed into inanimate objects, right? So a clock and a, and a uh, what do you call that, uh, lumine- lumiere thing. Candelabra, thank you so much, Vanessa. And you've got a teapot and you've got these all, all of the things. She does not leave them without hope. She says, listen, there's a way for this curse to be broken, but it's only if you, the beast, can learn to love another and be loved by her in return. So a true love story needs to happen in order for this curse to be turned around. Enter Belle, the heroine of the story, The Christ figure, if you want to think of it that way, right? Again, not an allegory. Belle arrives at the castle. What does she do? She comes to the castle. She trades her life for the life of her father. So he can go free. Now she's the prisoner. And so you begin to see this love story unfold as as Belle finds the grace and the mercy to love this disfigured beast. And of course, you know, spoiler alert, you get to the end. But the, the love story comes together. She loves him. He loves her. Although he's dying, things are transformed. There is a resurrection of sorts, right? And then all is made well. Human beings fully alive once again. The clock is now, you know, a human. And, you know, there's some transfer of personality. You can still see, hey, that's Cogsworth. But now he's a human again. And same with Lumiere, and same with Miss Potts and Chip and, you know, all these characters. Now, do you see the gospel story in this? You don't have to look that hard, (laughs) There was a time, men and women, where things were the way they were meant to be. We do not live in that time. We live in the cursed castle. We live under a curse. That's actually biblical language. Who comes to turn back the curse? Who is the redeemer, the rescuer? It's Christ. What happens at the end of the story? There's a marriage celebration. There's a love story. As Christ comes to to love his bride and marry his bride, who is the church, who is us, and what happens on the other side of that resurrection? We will be fully human. You have to understand, we are not fully human now. We are not the way we were meant to be. We are still clocks and candelabras and, and teapots. Right? Now, Why do I spend all this time setting this up for this passage? You have to understand that so much of Jesus' teaching only makes full sense if you put it squarely in the context of the whole narrative. The garden before the fall, the curse itself, and then one day what will be renewed. And we see that a new heavens, new earth in the book of Revelation at the end. Only if you put all those pieces together much of Jesus' teaching make sense. Imagine walking into the middle of Beauty and the Beast without knowing the backstory about the curse. You're like, why is that clock talking? Why is that candelabra trying to kiss the feather duster? You know, like, what's going on here? Who's the beast, and how did he even get there? You see, that's how we oftentimes try to apply Scripture to our own lives, I don't know if this makes a lot of sense in this context of the curse. So you hear this text today and you're like, wow, that's pretty strong, Jesus, about divorce and adultery and all those kinds of things. How am I going to reconcile that with my own story or the story of my brother or the story of my friend or my neighbor, right? Now, what the scripture is going to do this morning, what Jesus always does, is he's going to take us up. He's going to elevate our gaze, To say, I want you to see the bigger picture going on here. And then you can take your scene in the story and put it in that context. And although it may not make it easier, (laughs) it'll give a lot more life to it. It'll give a lot more hope to it. And I I think it'll help you. So that's where I want to go this morning. When Jesus is asked about divorce, this is exactly what he does. He elevates the conversation to the broader narrative, to the broader story. And I'll close my super long introduction with this one sentence. If you look at this passage primarily from the perspective of your little scene in the story, you're not fully getting it. You've got to go back to the grand story, the way things were meant to be before the curse and the way things will one day yet again be when the curse is undone on the other side. All right. With all of that as an intro, let's look back at the text beginning at verse 1 of chapter 10 of Mark. Getting up, he meaning Jesus, went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Now, I'm going to speed through these first few verses, but i got to say this about verse 1. Note there's a change in geography that's happening in the Gospel of Mark. Up till now, we've primarily been in the Galilee region, the northern area of Israel uh, that surrounds the, the lake, of the Sea of Galilee there, now Jesus is heading down south toward Jerusalem. Why is he heading toward Jerusalem? To die and be raised again, to sacrifice his life for the sake of the other human beings that he will rescue. That's his purpose. Now, the second thing you need to know about this uh, scene change, if you want to think of it that way, is he's now in the region where John the Baptist was teaching. He's now in the region by the Jordan where John was most popular, where John was baptizing. Why is that significant? You're about to find out, but just keep that thought in your mind. Verse two, some Pharisees came up to Jesus, right? Anytime Pharisees are in the story warning, they want to kill him. They're trying to trap him. They're testing him and began to question him. Here's the question, whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. Now, if you miss the context of this passage, you're not going to be able to fully understand what's happening here. These Pharisees were not coming to Jesus with good intentions. They were not saying, man, we really want to know God's word better. Will you teach us what God has to say about marriage and divorce so we can apply it to our lives and obey his word? That's not their prerogative. What they're trying to get at is, hey, let's see if we can trip Jesus up. Now, how could they trap Jesus with this question of divorce? Remember where Jesus is. This is the area where John's ministry was, was, you know, had flourished. What happened to John? John was put in prison and, and eventually killed. Why was John put in prison? What was controversial about John's teaching? Anybody remember? Divorce. Who's divorce in, in marriage? Herod Antipas. So the ruler of the area, you know, who wanted to kind of portray himself as the king of the Jews, he had divorced a previous wife so he could marry his brother's wife, Herodias. Herodias had divorced her husband, who was Herod Antipas. Uh, I get confused with all these. It's like an episode of some TV show. Uh, She divorced her husband so she could marry her husband's brother. And now they were married and they were trying to to sort of say, hey, you know, we did this all according to the Jewish law. John spoke out and said, you can't have it both ways, Herod. You're you're either a Jew or you're not. You're either going to live according to the word of, of God, you know, and the Mosaic law, or you're not going to. You can't have it both ways. And for that, Herod had him arrested and then, you know, the rest of the story, John was eventually killed. So I think what's happening here is these Pharisees are saying, maybe we could trip Jesus up on this same issue. He's either going to speak out against divorce and, and sort of say, yeah, John was right, which could get Jesus arrested and killed potentially. Or he's going to say, ah, John wasn't right. And then that's going to create a, a rift, a separation between the disciples of John and the teaching of John, which was very popular at the time in the teaching of Jesus. What is Jesus going to do in the midst of this trap? That's the context of what Jesus is about to say. So let's look at verse 3. He answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? Now, this is very smart of Jesus. You know, When you're, when you're trying to be trapped, what do you do? You throw a question back. Secondly, Jesus doesn't appeal to his own authority. He certainly could. He's God. Instead, he points them back to the constitution, if you will. So when the Pharisees say, is it lawful? Jesus is like, look, what law are you thinking of? Are you thinking of what's true in God's word? Are you thinking of all the extra laws that have been added over time that have become a part of Hebrew law? You need to go, Jesus is saying, back to the source. What did Moses say? Moses was sort of the, you know, he's the the constitution. (laughs) Like he's what you go back to when there's debate. You go back to the law of Moses. So this is what Jesus is pointing them to. Verse 4, And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, very interesting. Notice what happened here. In verse 3, Jesus says, What did Moses command you? In verse 4, they say Moses permitted. He's not commanding. Moses did not command divorce. And they actually quote this passage correctly. The passage they're quoting is Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 which is an interesting but also kind of complicated passage. But here's what you need to know about Deuteronomy 24. Moses, in the law of Moses, never endorsed divorce. It assumed divorce, if you want to think about it that way. But actually what's happening in Deuteronomy 24 is the law of Moses is setting up some offense around divorce to keep it from being even more devastating. So you got to have a little bit of historical context. In that day, the economic system was set up such that a woman, if she was not connected to a male household, either her father or her husband, a woman had no means of living. She would literally die apart from being connected to a, a family led by a patriarch, led by a male. There was no government social system. There was no safety net. So when a woman was divorced she would receive this certificate. And the certificate, although it was somewhat of a shameful thing, it also was helpful to her because it allowed her to remarry. It was proof that the marriage had been uh, um, abolished so she could remarry again and have a life like to be saved, if you will. So she would go back to her father and maybe eventually find another husband. Also, these divorce certificates would often allow her to take her dowry back. You know, the dowry is what came with her into the marriage. And so the divorce, depending on the situation she was divorced, would often allow for the dowry to be returned. This was about protecting the vulnerable woman. So essentially, this is, this is what the law of Moses is getting at. And what, what Jesus is about to do is he's going to say, listen, you're actually quoting the wrong passage from Moses' writing. There is another passage that Moses also wrote that that should rule and govern all your thoughts about marriage and divorce, and it's not Deuteronomy 24. So listen to what Jesus does. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 5 through 9. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now he's quoting Genesis 2. For this reason, verse seven, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together. Let no man separate. This is the moment in the conversation that Jesus elevates their view above the, the legal loopholes that they're trying to look for. It, it's as if Jesus is saying, look, you guys are forgetting you're living in a cursed castle. <laughs> Things are not working the way they are. So that, that, that thing about the certificate, it, 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 was, it, it was an acquiescence if you think about it this way, to the fact that things are not the way they are meant to be. But go back to creation before the fall, before the curse. It was never intended to be this way. God designed marriage, and God designed marriage, clearly from Genesis 2, to be a man, a woman, for life. One man, one woman committed to each other until death do us part. That is God's intention for marriage. Now, I want to dig in just a couple things to the quotations that uh, we, we get from Jesus uh, from Genesis chapter 2. And there's just a couple phrases that would be well worth our time to unpack. The idea of leaving the father and the mother, why is that so important? Well, go back to the economics of it. If, if you're an adult woman um, in, in ancient time, You're being cared for, you're being provided for by your father. But at some point in time, that father's going to die. At some point in time, you're no longer going to have that provision. So what are you going to do? You're going to attach yourself, you're going to cleave, you're going to stick to, you're going to be glued to a new family unit where now a man is joining together to a woman and there's something new that is being created. It is a new family. And that family will then support Children, potentially. Grandchildren, potentially. Servants. It's a whole new economic system. That's essentially what families were, among other things. Now, we we still have this same concept today in a marriage ceremony. So when I or any other pastor performs a marriage, you know, my favorite part is at the end, the pronouncement. And literally what I say, as I say, it's my great honor for the very first time to introduce you to, and then I say the name of the family, Mr. and Mrs., whoever. Now, at that moment as a pastor, I'm not just pronouncing, hey, they're now legitimately married. I am, in a sense, according to the law, speaking into existence a new entity, a new family unit the such and such family now exists if they have children that family will grow etc 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 do you see the link to the creation narrative even in a wedding ceremony there's something new that's being created it's a new family they will leave the old and they will join together they will cling they will cleave they will like glue and they will now be something new a new family that's what happens every time there is a marriage. Now, let's talk about one flesh. One flesh is not just a reference to sexual union, although that certainly is in play here, but it's a new entity. It goes back to what I just said. There's something new. Now, there's some mystery here, right? But the coming together of male and female is a new family that represents the image of God. Now, go back a chapter, Genesis chapter 1. God creates mankind, He says God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So there's this idea that a man and a woman coming together in this marriage reflects the image of God in their union in a way that I would say single man, single woman aren't reflecting the image of God that same way. They they are reflecting the image of God, but but there's something to the union of male and female that that is reflecting God's image in a particular, specific, important, beautiful way, glorious way. Now, back to our text. The Pharisees were wanting to talk about legal loopholes to try to trap, trap Jesus. Jesus takes them to the real issue which is, let's talk about why there is marriage in the first place. What is its function? You know, Jesus is saying, let's talk about the castle before the curse. Let's talk about the way things are meant to be. I would suggest this is where we should always start when we're talking about marriage and divorce and remarriage. This is the starting place. This is the theology we need to go to. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Meantime, back to the text. Something interesting is about to happen. The disciples are like you and me. They've got a lot of questions about this. All right, so do I. Let's look at verse 10. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. So I think what's happening here is the disciples are going to Jesus and they're like, you didn't really mean what you said earlier, did you? And he's like, yeah, in fact, you know, I see that and I'll raise you this. You know, Jesus is not letting anybody off the hook in this passage. Here's the big idea of what what I think Jesus is saying here. And then, you know, we'll talk about some, some exception in just a minute. The big idea of what Jesus is saying, and I don't think there's any way around this, nor should we want there to be a way around this. Every divorce... And remarriage is out of harmony with God's original intent. Now, that's hard. That's harsh. All I'm saying here is it was never meant to be this way. And some of you find yourself in these situations. And I know in the room, because I know some of your stories, many of you have been wounded In sinful ways. Some of you have wounded others in sinful ways. But in no way, shape, or form is a divorce ever a part of God's intention for his creation. That's my point. That's Jesus' point as he's getting here. He's saying, look, go back to the earth the way it was meant to be before the fall. This should never be. Moses allowed this under these circumstances, under these guidelines, because of your hardness of heart. In other words, because of the sin, i.e., because of the curse. But it was never intended to be this way. Now, now some of us are squirming in the room. (laughs) It's like, ay, 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 what does this mean for me? What does this mean for my story? And, and you're thinking, Rob, you don't know. You know, I, I had to get out of that marriage, et cetera. And are you telling me I could never be married again? That that would be wrong, etc. Um, well, listen, here's what I'd say. I, I wish we had more time to really unpack some other passages. We don't. But I think it's important for you to note that not only does Mark 10 not say everything the Bible says about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, far from it, Mark does not even record everything Jesus said in this particular conversation with his disciples. What's very interesting is there's a parallel passage in Matthew 19, the exact same incident is being described, and it includes a couple extra things that Jesus told his disciples that Mark doesn't record. And they're actually pretty important things if you're trying to construct a theology of marriage and divorce. Why did Mark leave those things out? just didn't fit his purpose. (laughs) You know, each of these authors have a particular purpose for writing these. The Holy Spirit leads them, which quotations, which thing to put in their narrative. And Mark chose this big idea of what Jesus said. Matthew expands on it a little bit more. Isn't it wonderful that we have both? Here's one of the things that Matthew 19, uh, that Matthew records about this conversation. Um, Jesus gives an exception to this idea that, you know, if you divorce someone, it is adultery. Here's the exception, Matthew 19. Whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. All right, so... That's true. Now, they're not conflicting each other. It's just that Mark's giving us a bit of a fuller account. I'm sorry, Matthew is. Mark is choosing not to. So if you want to know, hey, you know, am I free to marry another one? It gets a little more complicated a little bit. Now you've got to dig into, okay, except for immorality. Who's immorality? What kind of immorality? What does that mean? That's where the in-house debate exists within evangelical Christianity. Right. Does immorality just mean a sexual affair? Uh, could immorality you know, include other things? Um, what, what, what about someone that's actually never had a, a literal affair, but they're, they're, they're addicted to some things that aren't healthy and, and are immoral and these kinds of things? That's where the debate exists, y'all. And, and it's very difficult to come up with a clear, like, you know, here's the exception, here's not the exception. But in general, Jesus is saying, listen, there's at least one circumstance where it's no longer adultery, for this person uh, to remarry. And and by the way, there's another circumstance that Paul talks about as well, where he says, listen, you know, there's a circumstance where if someone's a believer, you know, there's a marriage, and then someone becomes a believer, and this person leaves them, because they don't want to be married to a believer. That's not what they signed up for. This person, the believer, is free to remarry again. There's these different circumstances that come to line, and we can't today go through them all and really unpack them. Here is what I think the implication is for us. The purpose of Mark's passage is not to articulate a full theology about divorce and remarriage. If you want to create that theology, and I think that's outstanding work, especially if it's part of your story, you need to understand what God's Word teaches, and you need to develop a theology of marriage and divorce. You need to go to all the passages. And don't forget about Genesis 2, is what Jesus is saying. That's where marriage all starts. Now, That takes us back to our text. I I wish I had time to say more, but we will give some specific application at the end of the message. There's no question that this text in Mark, particularly the way that Mark chose to write it, and I don't want to back away from that, there's no question that it's a difficult text to take in, particularly for any of you who are divorced and are remarried or want to be remarried um, someday. One of the places my mind has gone as I've thought about this and how to help you and shepherd you in this is I've gone to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is another classic example where Jesus elevates the conversation to the big picture. And he says some things that if you're not thinking about the whole story, they seem a little puzzling. Let me give you some words from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, Jesus said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemies. You've heard it said, do not murder, but I say, anyone who calls someone a name in anger is guilty of murder. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say, anyone who looks lustfully on someone who is not their spouse has committed adultery in their heart these are hard sayings of jesus and if you're not thinking about the context of the big story they make not a lot of sense it's like coming into the movie and being like hold on i I can't reconcile this y'all don't forget about the fact we are not fully human the way god intended us to be yet we are clocks and teapots and what do you call those things again Candelabras. candelabras thank you and this is my second time teaching this we are not the way we are intended to be. Now, for any of us who have put our hope in the Redeemer, in the Savior, the transformation process has begun but is not yet complete. So for those of you that have seen the movie or you know, if you will see the movie, what's interesting about the way they tell the story is throughout the, 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 the story, the, the clock and the candelabra and the teapot, etc., they, they keep getting less and less human Right? They keep getting stiffer. And right at the end, as all hope is lost, they kind of become permanently, at that point in the story, the inanimate object. This is what's happening with all unbelievers in the world. Right, There's a sense that they're becoming as they're continually rebelling against God and living apart from, you know, uh, living apart from salvation and putting their trust in, in Christ, they're becoming less and less who they were intended to be. You, church, those of you that have put your trust in Jesus are slowly, Paul teaches us, gradually becoming more and more like Christ. We're becoming more and more human if you want to think of it that way. Fully human the way that God intended you to be. However, you will never be fully transformed until Jesus returns and the curse is undone. That's where this is all heading. Now, what does this mean? Now, going to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is essentially saying, look, it is, it is not the act of adultery you know, that we think of it that makes you a sinner in desperate need of grace. It's a fleeting thought. Do you see this? Everyone needs grace. Everyone needs help. And the people who understand that are the ones that are the most Blessed. And the people that are looking to Christ for salvation are the blessed ones. That's what Jesus is saying in his uh, famous sermon. Now, he has a way, Jesus does, of reframing for us how far human beings have been disfigured from God's original intent, doesn't he? And he does not mince words. Uh, you need to see how far away you are from the way that God intended you to be. And, and here's where I want to link back to our text hard heartedness which is what Jesus is saying, was the reason that, you know, the acquiescence to the divorce thing, hard-heartedness is not a problem just for the Jews. Hard-heartedness is not just a problem for a few of us. Hard-heartedness is a problem for everyone. What does this mean for us? It means we all need redemption. It means we all need our hearts of stone transformed into hearts of flesh which is exactly what Jesus came to do. I want to read to you the words of N.T. Wright. He's a a tremendous New Testament scholar, and and he was commenting on this very passage in Mark chapter 10 about divorce and remarriage and where Jesus takes it, you know, back to the beginning, Genesis 2. This is what N.T. Wright says. If Jesus is now articulating a rigorous return to the standard of Genesis, to God's original intention... He is either being hopelessly idealistic or he believes that the coming of the kingdom will bring about a way for hearts to be softened. Amen. Now, we've got to go to one more place in our text, and it's going to seem like it doesn't fit, but I want to show you how I think it does. Let's pick it up in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Now, there's not an obvious connection here, but it's interesting to examine these two passages next to each other. The the divorce, marriage passage, and then the passage about the children. And I think the link here is the idea of redemption. Let me explain. What does Jesus mean when he says, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these children? Your first thought is probably, oh, because they're innocent. (laughs) The kingdom of God belongs to the innocent ones. Have you been around a kid lately? (laughs) They are not innocent. Like They come out of the womb, the most selfish human beings that you can imagine. Right? It's like, me, 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 me. I'm not going to leave you alone until you give me what I want. Right? It's not about innocence. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is for such as these, he's not talking about innocence, y'all. What is he talking about? He's talking about a child's wide-eyed faith. He's talking about their their beautiful ability to just take God at his word and just believe. Like, oh, it says it's true, it's true. Now, which character in Beauty and the Beast is best able to live under the curse most like he would have lived outside of the curse? They didn't get that in the first service. Now, how do you know this? So Chip's the little kid, right? He's a little, a little teacup with a little chip on it. And so throughout the movie, he's the one that's still being a kid. Like he's blowing bubbles, you know, out of his thing. He's goofing around, you know. He's just relaxed. He's at rest. He doesn't even really like fully understand that they're in trouble. Why is he able to continue living like he would have lived without the curse? Because his mom told him it's going to be okay and he simply believes it. We are asked, you and I, to receive the kingdom of God like a child. And what, that, what might that mean for you? In the middle of your divorce, in the middle of your hardship, in the middle of your struggling marriage, in the middle of your question of should I remarry or not? Listen, have faith that you're in the middle of a grand story of redemption of which Jesus is at the center. All things will be made right. The curse will be turned back. And in the grand scheme of things, y'all, it's short. The curse is. It's short. It doesn't feel that way, but it is. It's going to be okay. Now, let me give you some application. I know there are men in the room, women in the room, that are in all areas of this. You're right in the middle of a potential divorce, some of you. You're, you're, you're past a divorce. You want to remarry. Some of you are divorced and remarried. You know, some of you, you've broken this in your own story from your parents' divorce. On and on and on and on, we could go. How do you apply this difficult text? Well, I would encourage you first to think harder about your theology of marriage. It's got to start there. You've got to fit your circumstance into this big story, into this big picture. Now, I want to read to you something that Larry Kayser, our pastor of marriage, has written. Did you know we have a pastor of marriage? And and he happens to attend uh, this campus, uh, he and Ann and and, and, uh, their family. But Larry serves as our pastor of marriage for all of our fellowship campuses. And I want to read to you a, a part of something he's written that helps ground you in the theology of marriage. And I'll just read a few paragraphs of it, but I found it so helpful as I read it this week. We are passionate for marriage at Fellowship Bible Church. We believe that marriage between one male and one female is a covenantal relationship that points to our ultimate marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. You see how he's going big picture on us? This is exactly what we need to do. God's intention is that at the heart of our spiritual formation, we get equipped to love as he loves freely, totally, faithfully, and fruitfully. And, and how's that work going to be done in you, by the way? A lot of it's going to happen in your marriage as hard as it is to love another human being. That's where that chiseling work is often done. We affirm that the balance, strength, and prosperity of our culture depends on marriage. The union of one man and one woman. This union builds and shapes families. Families shape neighborhoods. Neighborhoods shape communities. Communities shape cities. Cities shape states. States shape nations. When the marital union breaks down, eventually so does everything resting on it. Heavy words and true. We need to be praying, don't we? Marriage was created by God for the display of his glory and for the joy of his creatures. Let me read that one again. Marriage was created by God for the display of his glory and the joy of his creatures. Through this gift, we are called to consider not only God's covenantal love, but also his incredible patience and unconditional mercy toward his beloved Because marriage was designed to portray God's goodness and fidelity, marital discord, division, and divorce obscures and corrupts the image of God painted within the world. Now listen, y'all. Not all of you in this room have been divorced, but all of us who are married have fallen short of God's ideal for marriage. Did you hear this? Discord? You had any ever? Division, you had any ever, and divorce obscures and corrupts the image of God painted within the world. Our call within the sacred institution of marriage is to reflect the gospel. You ever thought of it that way? A gospel of forgiveness, a gospel of long-suffering, unconditional grace, compassion, covenant, and humility. Failure to display these virtues corrupts the very essence of our calling and distorts the picture of the gospel which marriage is intended to portray. And I read those words, and I say I need to be reminded of those words, and I also say I need to be forgiven. I need grace. Do you? Now, Within that grand theology of marriage, all of us have fallen short. We're not off the hook. It's not like, well, I'm just going to keep living like a teapot. No, no. There is to be a transformation in us that we are growing more and more like our Savior until the day that the curse will be undone. So what might it look like in all of our unique circumstances to apply this big marriage theology into some difficult places? I'm a little past time, but I can't leave you without this last part. I want to speak to four or five different audiences very quickly. For those of you that are not yet married and never been married, you're single. Dig deep into the theology of marriage before you make a decision. It's a huge decision. You don't need to be afraid of it, but you must place it in a biblical context that far transcends your own little piece of the story. And we've got resources for you to do that. Talk to Larry. Go on our website. You'll find a wonderful preparation process for those of you uh, that want to be married. Number two, those of you who are currently married and never divorced, work hard. The stakes are incredibly high. And not just for you and your spouse and your kids and your grandkids. It, it, it's, it's the gospel that's, that, that's being on display here. Your marriage is much bigger than you. Hard work and laboring in your marriage is not a sign that your marriage isn't right. It's a sign that your marriage is right if you're working hard at it, if you're laboring hard at it. We have resources for you as well. In fact, there's a class called Reengage. Some of you in the room are in it right now. We're going to be offering it again in the fall. Keep your eye open for that. Reengage is a fantastic class for anyone who's married, whether you're struggling or whether you're not struggling. It will help you. Even if there's been a broken covenant in your marriage, at whatever level, and, and there's all, broken covenants at levels in all of our marriages, right? Even if there's been a broken covenant, you are called to pursue reconciliation until that path is exhausted. That's what the gospel and God's word would call you to. Now, for those of you that have been divorced, you are not stigmatized will you please forgive us for treating you that way unintentionally at times? No divorce is beyond grace. Let me say that again. No divorce is beyond grace. Not every decision to divorce is sinful. But even the ones that are, it's not an unforgivable sin. Redemption is always God's goal. Keep in mind, regardless of the circumstance, divorce is always a result of brokenness and it always contributes to brokenness. It's both. We would encourage you, if you've been divorced, to seek healing. We have a divorce care that's offered at the Brentwood Campus. Go on our website and learn more about that. Even if you think you've healed, but there's some things still stirring in you, encourage you to engage healing. Encourage you to receive grace from God Some of you just need to say, you know what? I just need to to, to understand that, that God has forgiven me for whatever part it is that you hold. Work toward forgiveness, whether or not it is reciprocated. That's hard. That could only be fueled by the Holy Spirit in you. Paul wrote in Romans 12, 18, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, those of you who are divorced and are considering remarriage, seek godly counsel. We would love to talk to you about this process. Remember that this passage in Mark 10 is not the complete story on the issue, although it's certainly significant. There are some instances where remarriage would be appropriate and even God-honoring, but there are other circumstances where it may be harmful and potentially contrary to God's highest good in your life. It's not simple, it can be complex, but don't lose hope. Remember that God desires more for you than you ever could for yourself. And finally, for all of us who struggle, I'll end with this. All of us who struggle in marriage, all who struggle with the desire to be married All who struggle with the broken effects of a divorce, either your own or parents or relative, all who struggle to forgive and receive forgiveness for woundedness that is part of the sinfulness of living in this curse, take hope. Redemption is where it's all heading. I thought it was interesting, Last Thought about Beauty and the Beast. the, The movie, if you watch it, it begins with a dance on the one side of the curse, it ends with a dance. On the other side of the curse, and in the middle is a redemption story. Our Bible begins with a marriage, Adam and Eve, ends with a marriage, Christ and his bride, and in the middle is a redemption story. We find ourselves in the middle of a redemption story, and marriage is at the core of it. Take hope, your Savior loves you and is doing work in you bow your heads as we pray our father i want to pray for those in the room that are hurting and i would want to ask them or ask you father that you would help them to look to you and look to your word for the balm that they need and Father, I pray for those that are struggling with the decision that they would look to you and look to your word, that, that your word would, would, would both be, be a balm and encouragement, and, and that's for some in the room, they need it to be a sharp uh, in, uh, encourager. They need it to be a, a sharpening stone that would help them live according to the way that you've designed them for. I pray it would be both. And I pray for those that, Father, are uh, feeling guilty Uh, because of things from their past related to this topic. And I pray that they would look to you if they haven't already for forgiveness. And once they've done that, God, help them know that they are set free. And I pray, Father, that you would encourage them in the grace that is ours being connected to the Savior of this story. And finally, Father, I pray for us as your bride, Jesus. I pray that we would live into that identity that we would be faithful to you, uh, that you would help us, literally this body, this Fellowship Franklin community of faith, uh, that we would continue to live in such a way that would reflect the grace that we have received, this beautiful union we have to our Savior Jesus Christ, and that the marriages in this room, as hard as they may be, would reflect the gospel to the glory of God. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Listen, before you go, if you would like someone to pray with you, and if you want to share some specifics of your story or not, we would love to pray for you. Come find me. Come find Daryl over here to the side. If you want to ask us to pray for you, write a note in your prayer request and and hand that to someone on your way out. Uh, Someone with a name badge would be just fine. We'll see you soon. I love you. I look forward to being with you again. Take care.